Supporters for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney and Pixar Soul, one of the top 10 films of the year as selected by the National Board of Review and the American Film Institute. Directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers, Soul follows Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, a musician whose passion for jazz is all-consuming until one misstep sends him on a journey to figure out exactly what makes life worth living. Stream it now on Disney+. Plus. Now nominated for two Golden Globes, including Best Animated Film, Academy Eligible, in all categories, including Best Picture. Sasha Baron Cohen, the writer, producer, and star of Borat's subsequent movie, is here with us today with his editors Craig Alpert and James Thomas, who worked on the first 2006 movie. They tell us, under the stress of COVID, how they whittled down 850 hours of footage into a 90-minute comedy and changed the course of the film halfway through in a race to deliver the sequel before Election Day. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro, and you're listening to Crew Call. Sasha, there's something I've been dying to ask you. First of all, you are the closest thing that we have uh, to Abby Hoffman. I mean that in the sense that uh, you're you're enlightening us and calling out closed-minded conservatives on their antics with guerrilla theater. That said, have you ever been arrested in any of this, in any of the productions you've done, even under an alias? Um, amazingly... No, the closest I got was in Milan uh, during the filming of Bruno. The, uh, it was during Fashion Week and word got out that I was in town. It was actually on the news in Italy that I was in town and I'd done something at Milan Fashion Week. We had to finish the movie uh, but the police had brought on extra police because they felt that I was going to do something. Um, and we had one opportunity to get it right. I managed to get on stage at a fashion show. It was crucial for us because it was the turning point of Act One where Bruno accidentally wears, gets stuck to things. He's wearing a Velcro suit and it gets stuck to a bunch of stuff and he accidentally falls onto a runway and that means that he's thrown out of the fashion community. We only had one take to get it right. The police were looking for me. I managed to do it. It's a long story. It was really hard to get in. Uh, They were very upset and they basically took me off for questioning. Pretty soon uh, they were strip searching me. And they, when they started strip searching me, they brought in about 12 police officers into this room. Um, and they, they made me take off more and more clothes until I was down to my G-string. And they said, uh, take it off. And I go, why? They go, you might have a gun in there. Uh, of which I was actually quite complimented by, the, <laughs> by that comment. But then I did realize this could go pretty badly. I'm in a closed room with a lot of people who are very upset with me, who are police officers in this. Um, And so I start lowering my G-string in front of these um, 12 angry men. And the door opens and 
my bodyguard arrives in the room. Now, I had hired a bodyguard who was the brother-in-law of the chief of police of Milan. That was why I hired him. That's great. He comes in the room and he goes, in Italian, I won't pretend to, he says, what the hell is going on? Because I'm, (laughs) there's a guy in his G-string who's about to, you know, expose himself fully to, you know, 12 cops. Um, And they just, there was a moment of silence and then the sort of chief police officer there said, uh, yeah, he was hot. So that's the closest I've got. And I'm very glad that the guy broke in at that point. So in the case in Borat 2, when you're removed from that Republican convention, where you're dressed as Trump, what happens in that instance? Do you, do you, do you reveal your cards behind the scenes and say, hey, here's who I am? And they're no. like, hey, uh, do they, or they? No, not at all. So that was a real... That was a real issue. In fact, I have to be honest, I changed my immigration status for the movie um, and got a green card for that scene. So we knew that we were going to try and infiltrate Trump's inner circle. We thought there was a pretty good chance I'd get arrested. And uh, to ensure that I could get back into the country, I got myself a green card. And that was a year-long process. So I did it mainly for that scene and a couple of other scenes. Um, also for that scene, I knew, I knew I was going to be surrounded by Secret Service. I knew that it could be perceived as a threat against the vice president. Uh, I think I got escorted by close to 15 Secret Service, Capitol Police, and then event security. Um, my aim was to not give my ID because I we knew that if word got out that I was shooting a movie, the movie would be a hundred times harder to shoot. And so the whole movie, the incredible thing was we managed to get away with it in secret. So obviously you're pulled out by 15 members of the intelligence services, not intelligence, I don't know, secret service and rest of, um, you know, these other cops. And then, you know, one cop goes to me, goes, hand me over your ID. And again, remember my aim is to not get arrested and not give my ID. So the first thing I say is, um, who are you? How do I, why would I give it to you? And he goes, I'm a policeman, give me the idea. I go, I need some proof that you are a policeman. And he points to his huge badge on his chest. He goes, here's your proof. And I say, well, how do I know that's real? And there's, you know, bear in mind, I'm surrounded by a phalanx of cops. Then one of the Secret Service guys says to me, just give me your ID. And I go, well, the issue is my ID is in my shoe. Do you really want me to take off my shoe? You want me to take off my shoe? You want me to take off my shoe? I'll take off my shoe. And um, obviously, I'm still in character as Borat here. It's a version of Borat because he's got a bit of an American voice because he's pretending to be... President Trump, and I didn't want them to realize it was me doing Trump, me doing Borat, doing President Trump, former President Trump, or what's he called now, Donald. Um, and so I go, you want me to take off my shoe? And he goes, mm, no, 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 it's all right. So I managed to delay, and then eventually his boss came along, a senior Secret Service person, and said, where's his ID? What's his name? 
And he goes, well, his ID is in his shoe. And his boss said, so what? Let's see the ID. Eventually, by the time they realized my name, I was being questioned by the Secret Service in a separate room. I'd hired a bail lawyer who was outside the room and was banging on the door, insisting on being let in. And I was saying, I insist before any questions are answered, I insist on my lawyer being present. Because I'd seen that in a bunch of movies and they just said, uh, no. I go, I insist. They go, with the Secret Service, you are not permitted to have your lawyer present. And so that failed. And luckily they didn't leak it to the press or that maybe they didn't quite realize. I, I don't know what happened and they came close to arresting me. They basically said, if you return again onto this property, you will be arrested. Now, the next day we sent a real Donald Trump impersonator into there to pick up one super wide shot that we didn't have. The real Donald Trump impersonator goes through CPAC and then within, you know, 90 seconds, he's surrounded by police. They bring him into this separate room. They go, we told you yesterday. We told you yesterday you're going to be arrested. He goes, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, by the way, this is a testament to how good the prosthetics were by Mark Coulier. And we had uh, Barney was working in it. We had an incredible prosthetics team that they felt my face was as real as his. And then thirdly, we had a third Donald Trump impersonator. It was a, a guy with the same mask on. The police then tried to arrest him and they said, you're arrested, you're under arrest. We, you know, we know who you are. You were here yesterday. He goes, no, I wasn't. They remove his mask, which took, you know, it takes an hour to remove the prosthetics. It takes five hours to put it on. So that morning I was up at one in the morning, five hour process to transform me into Donald Trump. It takes one hour to remove it. Um, they took it, took off his face and then it's a different guy. And so, <laughs> Yes, three people almost got arrested as a result of that scene. So um, one more uh, question before we talk to um, James and Craig here, your, your editors. Do the Republicans see you coming? And, and, and is there ever any kind of retaliation? Like Cheney's people says, you can't do this. What are you doing? And Giuliani's firing off legal letters at you. Any of that? Yeah, I mean, CPAC afterwards threatened to sue and their, their lawsuit was quite interesting because they were saying that we were casting them in a negative light by implying that they would allow somebody dressed in KKK robes into their conference. Now, the reality was, yes, there was somebody dressed in KKK robes in their conference and security, their security didn't do anything. None of the members who were going to CPAC objected. And so the, they had no case because the reality was they were completely fine with somebody turning up to CPAC dressed head to toe in a KKK, in KKK robes. So the problem is that the lawsuits have no merit because we are abiding by the law. And often these people have been improper. So after the Giuliani scene, he called the police. He uh, told them that there was a federal crime that had been committed. And as a result, they raided the hotel room without a warrant, which is, you know, completely 
improper wow. actually. They confiscated the equipment. So we couldn't film for 36 hours because we didn't have any equipment. Um, and they searched the room, they actually found some script. And, uh, but there was nothing, you know, we are never breaking the law. We are always abiding by the law. Um, so it's, it's impossible really to convict us of anything. When you're filming in character, do you see the edit coming together and realize which moments are going to make the cut? Yes. So bear in mind when I'm in a room, the director can't have contact with me or it's, it's very rare. I would have, you know, once every half an hour, I can go outside, speak to the brilliant Jason Walliner. Um, but in my mind, I'm in character, but I'm also trying to edit the piece. And these guys know about that, where I'm trying to get a clean setup line. And then if I feel that they've given me a great out, then I'll move on to, you know, the next section. But I'm trying to feel that I have, you know, if you, if you say each scene is about four minutes long, in that there are kind of five jokes which have a setup, then punchline, then follow-up um, line that's also, that builds on that joke. Sometimes you'll have three or four follow-up lines. I know what I'm going for. Uh, and if I feel there's a good out and I can't get any more comedy out of it, I move on because we're with these people for a certain amount of time. So yeah, I'm very, very conscious of the edit and where the cameras are. You know, we've got an incredible, brilliant, incredibly courageous camera team, uh, you know, headed by Luke Geispuler. But these, you know, these guys, by the way, risk getting arrested, physical harm. I mean, at the rally... Uh, the gun rally, you know, you're dealing with a lot of the kind of people who were there who raided the capital, right? So things could turn violent. People often have guns. These, This is the most courageous crew I've ever heard of on any movie because they're ready to get arrested. They're ready to get harmed. Uh, and obviously we were shooting in the middle of COVID for a lot of this. So um, they were scared of that at the time because there were no protocols in place. Uh, James and Craig, both of you worked on the first Borat film. James, you've been working with Sasha since the Ali G days. Uh, what is, is this, how is this film different? Is this always par for the course? Is there always hundreds of hours of footage and an army of editors working to find the diamonds in the rough? Yes. Um, yes. I mean, Sa Sasha likes to shoot a lot. Um, and uh, so there is always a team of us on board kind of mining the, the dailies and, you know, we share everything. So Craig will take a pass on a scene, then he'll share it with me. I'll take a pass and I'll share it with Mike Jambra, the, one of the other editors who worked on the show. And that way, I think we know by the time the scene's finished that no stone has been left unturned. Um, but this, this movie was really different because, uh, as you said, I worked with Sasha for a long, long time and it's always satirical, it's always topical. But this one was special because it felt like we were doing something that actually kind of mattered. You know, like we were, we were resisting, we were doing our bit. And that was something that I got a real kick out of. And it was something that kept it super fresh. And I think everyone really 
realized we were doing something that you know could could make a difference and maybe it did i hope it did can you share can either of you um share with me one of a few diamonds in the rough that you found uh going through the footage sifting through the footage where you turn to sasha and you say oh my god look at this we got this angle on this this guy you know you know dressed as a kkk member or something like that can you can you share with us any of those moments that 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 you found and got into the film well james it was probably that moment in cpac with mike with mike pence i think which james found which was sort of a turning point because cpac was originally scripted to be in the third act but once um once COVID hit uh and we shut down a bit you know the movie was reconceived a little bit and uh CPAC ended up in the middle of the movie, um, especially once we heard Mike Pence discussing the COVID numbers. <laughs> but yeah, we 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 found this moment where uh, Pence was at the lectern. He was speaking, and he said, uh, "You know, I was talking with Donald Trump yesterday, and uh, I told him uh, we're ready for we're ready for anything. And as it stands, we only have 15 cases or something of COVID." at the moment in the United States. We're ready, we're ready for anything. And um, as soon as I found that, I mean, I was, it was exciting to find it. And Sasha saw it, Jason, Craig, everyone, we all watched it. And um, I think it was a, a moment where we decided that we need to embrace what was going on in the world. <laughs> if I could just interrupt, think about, I'm just trying to emphasize the role of the editors in this process. So. The editors, you know, find a moment and that moment transforms the entire movie, right? That was, again, CPAC was the culmination of act three. It was meant to be, I rescue Tutar from Giuliani. She trips um, while we're being chased. I put her over my shoulder, run into a room and uh, Mike Pence is speaking. So that's the end of the movie. We're trying to work out how do we, we've been shut down because of COVID. Uh, myself and the producer, Monica Levinson, decide to keep the edit going. And we got three editors there, you know, three brilliant editors, Craig, James, and Mike. They all got assistants. We're, you know, the whole world has shut down. We have a three editor edit going on. We're the only people working in the world. Um, and I was so happy we did it. James said, you've got to see this. So that is a moment where you go, oh, that means we can, we can put CPAC in the middle of act two and we will actually make act three, the end of act two and act three happen against the backdrop of COVID. So that moment that these editors found, Craig and James found, transformed the movie it transformed the plot of the movie we didn't at that point if you cast your mind back to march people were saying okay covid it's going to be hopefully over in a month we people were treating it like a tropical storm and you know we just wait till the numbers die down and these guys changed the movie and at that point myself and jason realized had this epiphany this is a movie that we're releasing before the election, and we're making it to show our protest against Trump and Trumpism and the lies and conspiracy theories that that 
government were propagating. At this point, we see the vice president spreading this calamitous lie that we are ready for COVID. And we knew that the numbers were going to get into the hundreds of thousands in America. And it was a way to show the incompetence of the Trump government, right? If this was, you know, this was an emotional father-daughter movie. This had, you know, questions about the patriarchy. But fundamentally, it was a catalogue of the wrongdoings of Trump and Trumpism in 90 minutes. And there was a realization which was his greatest, most catastrophic wrongdoing was the willful incompetence on COVID that led to the unnecessary deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. And here he is, the vice president, on the day that he's been put in charge of the COVID task force, saying, it's all right, guys, we've got it under control. So that moment that these editors found transforms the whole movie and transforms the production. At that moment, I went to the fellow writers. I said, let's consider that the backdrop of this movie in the end of Act 2 and Act 3 is the real world amongst us, around us. Let's have Borat go through what we go through. Could he be in a lockdown? Could he be with these anti-lockdown protesters? You know, what would happen if the obstacles that we put on our character in Act 2, one of the obstacles is the obstacle that the rest of the world are facing, which is COVID. And it was a way for us to satirize the conspiracy theories that Trump was pushing out, that masks were an unpatriotic act that, you know, that you could have bleach and that would cure COVID. So, you know, the editors in this movie, the, the, the task is overwhelming. Yeah, you've got 850 hours. You've got to whittle it down to 90 minutes. And these guys are storytellers. They are writers because there are an infinite way of editing that movie. But we've got to make sure in 90 minutes, it's a satire. We've got to make sure it's really funny. We And we fundamentally, and the thing that we'd never done beforehand was to do a reality movie involving real people, but somehow it had an emotional father-daughter story in it that you actually cared about. And that was down to the brilliant editors. I must also compliment, even though he's my brother, Aaron Baron-Cohen, who made the score, treated the score completely seriously. He also wrote, obviously, the brilliant Wuhan flu, but he treated the score like a true romance because it is, it's the story about a father who's falling in love with his daughter, the first Kazakh man ever to fall in love with his daughter and the first Kazakh daughter to ever fall out of love with her father. So it's this classic story of, you know, it happened one night, it follows that classic structure and that's through the music, that's through the editing, and obviously the great direction by Jason Walliner. But that's the achievement of these guys. Supporters for this podcast and the following message comes from Disney and Pixar Soul, one of the top 10 films of the year as selected by the National Board of Review and the American Film Institute. Directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers, Soul follows Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, a musician whose passion for jazz is all-consuming until one misstep sends him on a journey to figure out exactly what makes life worth living. 
Stream it now on Disney+. Plus. Now nominated for two Golden Globes, including Best Animated Film, Academy Eligible, in all categories, including Best Picture. Can you give me a quick timeline? So the CPAC conference is in March? I believe that CPAC uh, was in February. And then you discover this. You're getting footage immediately as it happens. You're discovering this moment in February about the about the coronavirus, or did you discover about the fifteen the fifteen cases? Okay, so CPAC. Let me actually Google this now. No, February twenty sixth. No, we we were there on February 29th. So we shoot that February twenty ninth. Yeah, mm-hmm. March twentieth, uh, I believe. So a few weeks later. California shuts down. We realize we can no longer continue filming. We shut down, keep the edit going. And this is probably end of March. James gives me a call and says, you have to see this. End of March. Then I go to the writers, you know, go to Monica Levinson, the producer, and go, is there a way that we can somehow go out and safely shoot? The only way we managed to do that was... We contacted the top epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Jennifer Naso, and said, is there any way you can help us devise a plan where the crew can be safe and not get COVID? And so we ended up being the first movie out there shooting. Wow. Wow. And that's of these guys, right? And then, and then Julie, the whole Giuliani is almost like your big climax. When did that work itself in? So that's, you know, we write a script uh, at the beginning of the movie. We, we felt we had to do it for this, for it to be emotionally satisfying. And again, these editors are tracking the emotion, what's Borat going through, what's Tutar going through, you know, so that when she rejects him, you know, that has to be seeded earlier on. There's a lovely little moment after, those of you who've seen it, after the plastic surgeon where he says, you know, she has to be great because uh, I don't want him to return her. I don't want Giuliani to return her. And she has this realization, what? You're going to leave me? And so she's doing all of this to please her dad. And suddenly he's going. So why is she doing this? It's the beginning of the seeding of her breakup from him. So, yes. So with Giuliani, we always knew that that was going to be at the end. We'd written this script. We, you know, followed a pretty tight structure. We even had a read-through in Hollywood where we got a lot of the best directors we knew, Lord and Miller and Spike Jones, and we had Seth Rogen and Jay Roach and had everyone in there. And we go, you know, this is the movie we want to make. It's really funny. People loved it, but they said, you know, who are you going to cast to play uh, Pence and who are you going to cast to play Giuliani? We were like, no, we're going to do this with real people. And they said, well, you're completely crazy. You can't do that. I mean, Borat's recognized you're completely mad. And this was before COVID. So, yeah, we always wanted to get Giuliani or somebody right. You know, we wanted to infiltrate Trump's inner circle um, and sort of demonstrate the kind of misogyny within it, you know, firsthand. Uh, he'd obviously talked about it himself. But yeah, the, the structure remained the same. But the backdrop of Act 3 and the end of Act 2 transforms to being COVID. So it's another obstacle for Borat, the protagonist, 
to complete his mission. Now, you and Maria were speaking mixed languages throughout the film. Were you able to use this through the editing process and hitting story beats uh, with captioning? If everyone could talk about that. I'll let them speak about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the great thing about the way they speak is we can honestly caption whatever we want. You know, we can we can alter the, uh, you know, the captions as we see fit. But um, which I think for the most part. Right, James, I think we were sort of constantly rewriting with the writers and with Sasha to. Yeah, I mean, it's tr- it's truly a gift, that stuff, right? I mean, you can you can continuously be punching the movie up in terms of comedy <laughs> because of Sasha speaking Hebrew and uh, Maria speaking her native Bulgarian. And it just gives us, you know, similar with the first movie where Ken was speaking, uh, you know, Azamat, Sporat's producer, was speaking Armenian and Sasha was speaking Hebrew again. And, yes, throughout the process, that's always been you know, you hear of movies getting punched up with ADR or whatever. This is an ongoing process where the writer, Sasha, I've had an idea, this line could be, you know, X, Y, Z, and it will just transform a scene. So yes, to answer the question, it's it's a great way of working. There's something like that. So just to get into the technicalities of that. So that CPAC scene goes from being the end of act three to the middle of act two. So how does that work? Because why is he suddenly with, Mike Pence. And so we change the aim of Borat to deliver her to Mike Pence. Yeah, that was not the aim of the movie originally. So you, you know, you recalibrate the movie, you go, okay, we love this scene. And then Borat's going to have a realization that Mike Pence is not going to work. Shit, I'm going to get murdered unless I find somebody new. Who's it going to be? Bingo, Giuliani. Um, so that's, we are, you know, as these guys know, we are doing a variety of different versions of the movie, some completely different from each other. And often we will, you know, we had almost no time at all. We had six months less than we normally would to edit this movie. And we were sometimes putting up just radically different stories up on screen. So we go, let's have two screenings tonight. One where... Borat's giving her to Giuliani from the beginning. Let's just try that out and see if that works. Let's get rid of Mike Pence. And then, okay, let's try this version. But we were doing very rapid experiments that were hugely, you know, in a normal movie, you would never be able to do that. But these guys are so fast, they're so ingenious, and they're fundamentally brilliant storytellers that they can somehow manipulate this 850 hours of material to be this malleable movie where where you're watching it on screen, it makes sense. It feels like, oh, it was always written like that. Fortunately, since a lot of the movie is spoken in Kazakh, we are able to alter the titles and evolve the story and make changes to, you know, where we see fit. It's, you know, especially in the introduction of the movie, it it, it helped us a great deal. Now, Craig and James, are you sending notes to the DP I understand Sasha likes a wide shot so he you could see everything. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that sort of evolved uh, over the years of, 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 you know, from the Ali G show, the 11 o'clock show, where, where we started working together, where, 
I think we realized pretty quickly that with this type of humor, the two shot is king, right? Because you have your subject and you have Sasha playing whichever character he was playing at the time. And people, you know, the more time has progressed, the more aware people are of the way that you can edit things and you can change meanings of things. So we realized very quickly that to be credible and to be taken seriously, you don't monkey with that two shot very much. You, you only use it when you, you know, you only cut away to coverage when you have to, to emphasize the joke. But the two shot is the sort of bedrock, if you like, of what Sasha does. You know, it's, you see, there's no, there's no misinterpretations. That's what happened. Giuliani's there, you know, Maria's here. He said and did this at that point with her in the room you know there's there's no debate there is absolutely no debate in the two shot so that became a very important tool for us sorry go on 850 hours is the movie ever done like sasha is there a version of this movie like do you watch this and say how do you know when it's done so that's a really good question i mean we knew again we made a movie like this, and I don't know, I haven't made a movie like this, um, has to have a deeper reason to be made. Everyone who was on the crew was angry about and terrified about the dangers to American democracy. You know, dangers that I think we saw in the attack on the Capitol. Um, so we knew that the movie had to be done and delivered by the election. Uh, we knew that Amazon needed at least three weeks to have the movie done. In the year, the way we, because the post schedule was so tight and we were shooting really until about five weeks before delivery. No, actually three weeks before delivery, we were still shooting. Um, the, what originally happened with the post schedule was we agreed to have two different movies because we knew that we couldn't get the movie perfect in time. So we said, okay, we're going to do one version of the movie that's going to be for America where it's, that has to be perfect because we're making it for this election. And we're going to deliver, you know, and I'm embarrassed to say it, a slightly lesser version of the movie to the rest of the world because we're making this, again, we want everyone to see the best movie possible, but we're doing this for the election. You know, we want to, this to be just a reminder. I, listen, I don't know what impact it had. I think the Giuliani stuff, you know, undermined his ability to spread the false myth about a stolen election. But, so we were doing it for that. So we had, we were actually prepping to deliver two movies one that we were going to give to the rest of the world and one to America. On just in the final, when we were about to deliver the one to the rest of the world, we got a phone call in the morning just saying, if you can deliver the movie tonight by midnight, we can deliver one version of the movie to the whole world, which is obviously our vision. We want the whole world to see the best version of the movie. I called up Craig and James and Mike Jambra and I said, what do you think? Can we lock the movie by midnight? And they said, yeah. I mean, yeah. I would have, assumed, it was a mad idea to assume that we could lock it. I mean, we did the final mix 
and the color timing on the same day in three quarters of a day. And um, yeah, we locked the movie. I mean, these guys are so good um, that th their instincts are perfect by that point. So, and it's a complete collaboration. Um, there's also Deborah Neil Fisher, who was like a fairy godmother to the process. She was helping us as well. And, you know, it was a collaboration. You know, J Jason, obviously the director was in there as well, but it was how do we, let's follow our instincts now. This movie, it's gotta be our best shot. And I believe, you know, and we had, we'd, we'd edited 20 different versions of the movie that this is by far the best version of the movie that could have come out. That said, do you think we'll see an extended cut uh, before Oscars? Not before Oscars, but there's so much. I mean, if you look at the lockdown house, I mean, I was in character for five days there. So, you know, there's close to 70 hours of footage. You know, you could make a sitcom out of that. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to revisit some of the footage at some point. What do you think, guys? Yeah, I think the lockdown house, especially, you can make a little. The Jim and Jerry show. Yeah, the Jim and Jerry <laughs> show and have, you know, have the guys be best friends and then Borat comes and interrupts it. But yeah, there, there's so much material in a film like this, more so in any other film that I've ever worked on, you know, that there are a million ways the film could be cut, you know, and I believe we cut it in the best way possible. But you could, I mean, you could keep editing this film for, for years if you wanted to. But uh the election was a very good kind of you guys have to stop now points. As you said, Anthony, with like 850 hours, when is it done? I mean, you could you could keep going forever. But um, with the right instincts and that deadline, I think we uh, we uh, we we, you know, that, that served us well to have that deadline. Actually, it was it was good. Brought it really focused. Now, now, both of you have worked with Sasha for quite some time. I got to imagine that as you're sifting, is it very easy to sift through footage? Like, you know exactly what he wants, so you know how to, to set up and punch things? Or is it a constant, is this a constant, and I mean this in a great way, a Jackson Pollock painting, where you're mixing colors and, and, and things are constantly morphing? I think every, every gig is different, right? With Sasha, every film has been different. But I think that, uh, you know, Craig and I have worked for a long time together with him. And I think now there's an understanding, there's a shorthand. You know, I think when you come across something in dailies, um, I kind of know that it's something that will work. And, and I think Craig's probably the same, you know, we, and then we'll, we'll, we'll excitedly call each other and go, have you seen this? like check this out and you know that's when you know something's good is when we're kind of sharing it between us and and then yeah it, it, the acid test is a screening right so our, our audience screens that's that's where we really learn and, and garner all of the information that helps us finish these films so you and we did, were lucky you did test yeah, this we did test and we were very lucky that um New Zealand has done such a brilliant job of handling the coronavirus because that's where we did all our testing. You know, we weren't really able to test in the States. or We did test a couple of times here, but, um, you know, socially distanced audiences, whereas in Wellington in New Zealand, you could pack them in. And that's, that's what we did. And we got, we got some really good results there. That's amazing. I was going to ask you guys, 
testing is always a funny thing. Some filmmakers like it, some don't, but when it comes to comedies, I know it's always important to see how it plays in the room. And if something is wrong, you know exactly where to fix it. But in this, in this, in, in this case, wow, it was, I was gonna ask, did you, you answered the question, was it tested? Um, I mean, do you like testing, Sasha? I don't want to call it testing, right? So okay. I think the way we approach the movie is with our ego. The idea is that the movie has the ego. So it doesn't matter who comes up with the idea, who edits the scene. Ultimately, the, the movie has to be as good as it can be. It has to be as funny as it can be, as satirical. And in this case, the challenge was emotional. So we're not really testing it. We want to hear the laughs of the audience. And we're quite mechanical in the way we analyze that afterwards. Obviously there was this issue, COVID. There were no, we did an outdoor screening in New Jersey. We got back the sound and we couldn't hear the audience laugh. Firstly, they were wearing masks. Secondly, they were 15 feet away from each other. They were outside in the cold. Uh, at one point we heard some geese. I think there were geese flew over and they were, it was absurd. And so we searched around the world to find out where could you have an audience in a cinema. And obviously the place that dealt with COVID the best through their sensible policies was New Zealand. And so we, we showed the movie to audiences in New Zealand really to hear about the laughs because the audience collectively are a genius when it comes to comedy, they're not wrong. If they're not laughing, there's something wrong with the scene and with that joke. I'm gonna give you a tiny little example. On Borat One, which both of these editors um, crafted beautifully, there's a scene where Borat is at a bed and breakfast owned by two Jews. They feed him some food, he's eating it. They tell him it's kosher. Borat spits out the sandwich, realizing it's kosher. And it never got a laugh. And so what we did, I remember sitting with James, I go, there's gotta be a reason why it's not funny. The joke on paper is funny. You spit out a, a sandwich, a pastrami sandwich, because you find out it's kosher. It's gotta be funny. We decided to go frame by frame, right? And when I'm talking about the meticulousness of these editors, they know, and I'm not joking, every frame of the final cut, right? So we went frame by frame and lo and behold, there was a sound effect of spitting that an early assistant editor had put on that was three frames prior to Borat spitting out the sandwich. We, I remembered me and James looked at each other, we lined it up, we lined up the sound effect and then we doubled the volume of the sound effect. We put it back in an audience and suddenly it went from no laughs to a huge belly laugh. So when we're talking about the, the necessity and craftsmanship of these people, every frame, the, the ins and outs of every frame, the choice of camera angle, forget about the story things, but just in the craftsmanship of making sure that these jokes land, you know, that you're dealing with master craftsmen. I can't thank you all enough. Uh, Craig Albert, James Thomas, and Sasha Baron Cohen. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.